Welcome to the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast, hosted by myself, Sebastian Bates, and Timothy Fair-Matthews. A podcast made by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. We're launching our podcast with a series of raw but real interviews with some of the world's leading business mentors, industry experts, and entrepreneurs with incredible stories. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and entertain. So if it's your first time joining us, make sure you go back to episode one and don't miss a thing as you listen to incredible insights from our speakers. This is the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast. Guys, welcome back to the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast. I'm here today with Gavin J. Gallagher. Gavin is an Irish property investor, entrepreneur and speaker as well as director at Earls Fort Group, which is a corporate real estate portfolio at the East Point Business Park in Dublin, comprising of 38 buildings across more than 40 acres. Gavin has an incredible story. He's a good friend of mine. We've spoken a lot about this, especially uh, during the pandemic. I really believe that right now, this is a very, very difficult time for a lot of people, both in the UK, Dubai, around the world. If you're a small business owner watching this, you may be going through a difficult time. Perspective is really, really helpful when you're going through a tricky time and i think you'll find that gavin's story gives you the very very highs of business and the lows of business and then the perspective on what resilience you need to get through that so the title of this talk is resilience through recession so gavin awesome to have you on mate thank you good to be here thanks sebastian uh, do you know what we've had so many chats i thought i thought i'd already interviewed you but it's just yeah. in my spare time i think <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, our, our conversations back and forth across whatsapp and stuff yeah that's it yeah so anyways it's, it's just awesome to have you here mate um for anyone who's who's obviously you've got, you've got your own podcast which is um doing really really well in Ireland, i believe um but for behind, anyone who doesn't really sorry it's called behind the facade for anyone looking <laughs> behind the facade yeah, I, was, I was gonna let you name drop that at the very end but you can just go ahead and do that now if you like <laughs> behind so um so yeah, but for anyone who hasn't heard of you, could you just give us a, a little bit of background about who you are and what is it you got up to? Well, it's uh, like similar to what you said. Um, I run a business park here in Dublin, and it's a it's it's kind of a big business park, um, forty acres, like you say, about fifty different companies um, based here in this park, like ranging from say Google to. Um, Google and Oracle are the two largest companies. And then we've got like, you know, 48 other companies that are kind of spread out, ranging from smaller kind of own door offices up to kind of big ones with, you know, multiple floors in buildings and stuff like that. But um, over the years, I've kind of built my own stuff as well. This is a family business and uh, and I kind of fit in with the, with my cousins and we work together uh, closely on running this place. We actually built it ourselves and we still manage it now. And it's been going for about 25 years now. So that'll put a date on my, uh, <laughs> my age and stuff. The, um, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, that's it really. It's, it's corporate real estate more so than uh, residential or any of that stuff. Although I have mm. had a hand in, in, a, in, in kind of everything over the years and um, starting out kind of small deals and then moving up through the chain to big stuff. Now, I mean, this business park is probably worth like 400 million now at the stage after 25 years of building and kind of continually adding to it and improving it. I mean, I mean, one of the things we spoke about before was legacy as well. So it'd be great to to tap into that because this really is a legacy business for you, isn't it? It's it's something that's going to be going on for generations and generations. So really, really interesting there. 
Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, in fact, it it goes. It's it's a, it, like the business was not started by me, and that's something that I kind of I'm, I'm, I like to point out because it's um, I started my own thing and I kind of did really well for it, and then I kind of I had some struggles with it as we'll go into today. But this business, because it's a family led business, it was actually started by my my uh, my, my grandfather and his brothers back in the '60s. And uh, they built, they had built kind of a housing empire and they were building houses like thousands of houses all over the country. And then, but they, you know, as was the case back in those days, the guys lived a pretty unhealthy lifestyle and most of them were dead before they were 60. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so it was passed down to the next generation, which was my father and then his cousins. And they worked together closely building the thing up and stuff. And uh, and then my dad died at the age of 45, very young. I was 21 and I got kind of thrown into the role of being part of the family business. Wow. OK, so, so at 21 years old, you were you were then kind of thrown into this. But before that, did you have anything to do with it or was it just sort of watching your dad and your family do it? You know what? That's the thing that um, it's funny. I kind of reflect over this um, for a book that I'm kind of thinking about putting together at the moment. And what actually happened was um, I was kind of the typical kind of happy-go-lucky school kid, not a care in the world. Right? You know, that was about it. I didn't have any kind of interest in business. In fact, I cho- I chose not to do business as a as a as a study kind of subject in school and things like that because I thought it was boring. Mm. And and then I went on a holiday to the States with the family and we were going to Disney World, but we stopped off in New York for a day or two. And when I landed there and arrived, I remember looking up at skyscrapers and just being absolutely mesmerized by this place and New York City, just the vibrancy and the and the energy of the place. I just immediately kind of came back home saying, I, I'm going to be an architect. And and I went on and actually like applied myself to become an architect. And so at the time I was not an academic kid. Like I would get, you know, one out of 50 spelling tests and stuff like that. Like, I mean, it was an absolute disaster. I just, I think I had ADHD like, and just couldn't concentrate on anything. And uh, so did, it was just, did you start the, did you start the course, the uni course? I, or? I actually, yeah. I like, it's funny how that singular focus suddenly on wanting to become an architect suddenly yeah. managed to like wash away all of that kind of problem and became like hyper-focused on becoming an architect. So got the points needed, which were like very high points. Um, It's it's a difficult course to get into, but I somehow managed to pull it off and got into the course and started studying. And my dad was like super proud that I had achieved this because he didn't go to college and none of his brother, you know, none of his, you know, cousins and stuff went to college. And uh, and then all of a sudden, in third year, my dad went on business. He was a businessman as well, and he was like flying around the world, kind of looking at deals here, there, and everywhere. And he went to Africa on business, and he picked up an illness there, and and they basically couldn't treat it, and he died three months later as a result yeah. of that trip. And so I was thrown in from not having a care in the world, you know, not giving a, a damn about business and all that. Suddenly, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of like right between myself and my mother. My brother was 18 and my sister is still in school and my sister was 14 and, and obviously still in school. And so it was kind of like myself and my mother trying to figure out how the business works. And, you know, we had, my dad was an active businessman, so we had a lot of stuff going on. And I mean, it was a bit of a disaster because we didn't have a clue. He didn't talk to us about it. He was kind of a typical Irish guy who would, you know, keep the stuff to himself don't you know don't talk about it at home because it'll only dry questions that you know maybe people don't want to be worried about and stuff 
And um, so when he died, we found that, you know, he was super active and projects everywhere with bank debt all over the place. And so we we had to kind of like sell businesses in order to pay down yeah. and stuff. So it was, wow. a, it was a difficult sort of baptism of fire. And thankfully at the time, my dad's brother, uh, his uh, my uncle was sort of there and, and he kind of like stepped up and sort of helped us out and stuff like that. And, uh, and other relatives and stuff like that did that. But then uh, within a couple of years, he actually was facing his own struggles unbeknownst to us. And he took his own life um, oh. at the age of 44. So when that happened, there was absolutely no choice. It was me like basically give up the architecture and, and roll up the sleeves and get involved in the family business. Wow. That's amazing, really, that you were kind of thrown into it that way. But it's it's also quite funny because you and me both had a similar path in that we both are university architecture dropouts. <laughs> well, the thing is, is I actually, believe it or not, I, uh, I wanted to drop out because I felt it was necessary. But my yeah. mother was adamant that my since my dad had been so proud of me getting into architecture that I was not allowed to you know, drop out of it. So I actually went through, I went, I, I took a year out after his death. I yeah. worked in a, in a firm and, and I kind of got some experience out in the world. And then I went back in fourth year and finished, like was absolutely, again, hyper-focused, finish fourth year, finish fifth year, get out and get back into the business. And so that's what I did. So I actually have a degree in architecture. Oh, no, okay. Well, you're showing me up here then because I thought you dropped out. <laughs> you bought it up. <laughs> I didn't have that hyper focus. I left. <laughs> I just went traveling for about two years. Okay, cool. So, so wow, yeah, amazing, amazing story. Really, that you were you were in that position, and still you returned and completed the course. And then, um, I'm assuming after that, then you then went into the family business and and started growing the business, which had been through a bit of a shock with your with your father and your uncle leaving. Well, well, actually, yeah. What happened was, in terms of the sequence, what happened was my uncle was still alive when I finished when I qualified as an architect. And so that's what kind of the, him being involved gave me the, you know, the time off to kind of get continue with my studies. So finished that and I started working um, on, a, on the business, uh, on, on basically building my own business. I was working for a large firm, but I kind of found working at a big firm difficult. I'd not really a kind of a corporate kind of a person, as you can probably see with the just the clothes even. I just it just me being boxed into kind of like a suit and tie and things like that just didn't work for me at all. And so um, I started my own architectural firm um, as soon as, you know, within a couple of months of leaving college, I decided I'm starting my own firm. So I wow. did that, but I actually, I, I had in my mind that I was going to do development of some sort or investment of some sort, because I'd always been kind of like, um, you know, I'd liked the stock market. I used to like sort of be interested in share price movements and things like that. And then I also knew that, you know, that there was money to be made through building and things like that. And funny enough, I've just been reflecting on it after the election result in America. Um, I actually was a big, big fan of Donald Trump back in my teens, believe it or not. Okay? Like way, way back in the 1980s when he first kind of came on the scene. Yeah. Trump Tower and all that. And he was only in his like 30s or something when he did that huge building. And I can remember being like hyper impressed as this young kind of impressionable teenager and saying, wow, you know, Donald Trump, look at this guy and stuff. And of course, now it's the <laughs> complete opposite. But at the time when you're like, you know, when you're young and wet behind the ears, I thought this was an amazing kind of it's like a so I thought to myself, right, I'm going to do architecture and development and investment. And I'm going to try okay. and have like a, a multidisciplined firm. 
so, 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 this, so, how, so how old are you when you when you set up this firm? Around twenty six. Twenty six, because there aren't. I mean, I might be wrong here, but there aren't many architect students who leave and then by the time they're twenty six, set up their own architectural firm, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is, is there was there was all sorts of reasons for it. Like what happened was when my when my uncle died um, a few years later you know, I stepped into his role. But prior to that, I had kind of plenty of time to myself to kind of do stuff. And so I was pursuing projects. I had found that I knew a few people. So I got a couple of jobs. And what I did was um, I was doing my own small architectural practice work, working for clients and stuff. But then I, I had put some savings into buying a site on the west coast of Ireland. And this site that I bought was, um, it was a small site of about an acre of land. And I can remember I paid 25,000 for it and I used my own architectural skills to kind of draw four houses and go off and I applied for permission for those four houses. And then the permission came back and I sort of said to this local estate agent or auctioneer, I said, you know, I'd like to go and build this now. Can you give me an idea of what price I would get for each house so I can kind of do my numbers? And he came back and he says, would you be interested in selling it like just as it is? And I said, well, you know, I prefer to build it because like, I want to be a developer. And he goes, well, I have a, you know, a client who's a builder, house builder, and he would love to just buy your site from you straight. And I said, well, how much? 125. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Wow. And I was, and what you've <laughs> got to understand is at the time I was working on this small domestic house project for a client in, in Dublin. And I had spent the best part of a year slogging over like drawings and everything like that. And I can remember kind of thinking, geez, you know, this is a hard slog, this architecture gig. Yeah. And, and, and then, so a whole year of slog for, I remember it was 9,000 was the fee that I was going to get paid for the slog. And the idea in architecture is that you have multiple clients so that you get, you know, a couple of different guys paying this fee. But at this stage, it was early in the, at the beginning of the project. Uh, at the beginning of my business. So I didn't have many other, you know, clients and stuff. So this was the only client I had bringing in 9,000. I was slogging on it for a, a long time. And suddenly I go off and in the space of like maybe six months, I make 100,000 on this land deal in, in the West. So, so obviously that must have just impacted your mindset, right? You must have just totally. thought, I need to stop what I'm doing and just put Absolutely. all of my eggs in one I mean, basket and it was, go for it. It was just like, a, it was like flicking a switch. It was like, what am I doing here? Like, why am I even saying that I'm an architect? Like just go straight yeah. into the property deals, you know? So that's what I did and basically piled into that. And so I started doing that. Um, and I was really doing it on a, on a small scale because I didn't have a huge amount of money. But then when my uncle died, um, I stepped into his role. And so I started getting a salary from doing what I was doing for the family business. And that kind of propped me up a bit. And suddenly I was mm. thinking, okay, I've got um, I've got this little bit of extra. Then something else happened in another investment, and I got involved in the managing of that. So within say two years, I was suddenly earning about three times the amount of money that I had been. So things yeah. were suddenly kind of moving quickly forward, and so I felt more confident doing my own thing and stuff like that by then. Wow, yeah, really, really interesting. So, so I guess I guess at this stage, you know, you're you're throwing yourself into it's mostly commercial, right? So commercial property. Um, all in Ireland or elsewhere as well? Well, it you know, it was a slow start. That first little site was a residential site. And then I got into some more. And, and what happened was I started partnering was a good thing. I, there was a guy that was of my dad's generation. 
and the family had a little piece of land and it was next to a site that was coming up for sale and so just the, there was a marriage value between my land and this land and he came to me and said gavin you know your dad would have been interested in this you know would you like to do it with me and i said absolutely and he owned a piece of land in this jigsaw as well so we went in and we did this together so it was me working with a guy my dad's age and uh, and it was the first time that i had to go and borrow a load of money and i can remember like prior to that i wasn't interested in debt i was kind of like of the view no i'll do it with my own resources and i won't get myself heavily in debt and stuff and he was saying the same gavin wake up this is how the, the, the development world works you, you know yeah. you borrow a lot of money and the more you can borrow the better so <laughs> i kind of said oh okay so we bought this old house and it was on about um it was on about almost two acres and it was an old period house you know from the from say 1900 or something like that and had a huge big garden and what we did is we went in for planning permission for four big five bedroom kind of houses in the back garden um accessing this bit of land that i had and right next to the land that he had and uh, anyway we kind of thought to ourselves wow we're gonna we're gonna make some good money on this we'll probably make like a million between the two of us and so we were kind of really excited at the idea of making this million and but at the time the irish market was just on fire and we were delayed by planning permission there was all these rules and stuff around that neighborhood and so we were delayed for about two to three years on the project from where we wanted to be and whilst our borrowings and all that were clocking up the value of the actual land in the area was going up much much faster and right. so in the end, we were when we actually were building this, we were looking at a at a profit of around six million now, yeah, and yeah. it was just it was incredible. This like ramp up all of a sudden so fast, and so that happened and coincided with me doing various other. I st once I did that project and I and I was borrowing kind of you know a million or something like that. I suddenly had confidence to do it on other areas, so I borrowed it here and I borrowed it there and I borrowed it in another place. And I had lots of borrowings going on, but I was turning every deal that I did into decent profits and they were growing quite quickly. So, of course, when you start making all this kind of money, your ego starts to kind of swell up and, and start to yeah. think you can do no wrong. You know? yeah. I mean, I mean, pretty much listening um, or watching right now, uh, Gavin's one of those really, really humble guys. And he, he's it's it's really I've really got to try and pull this, um, you know, the. The high life out of him when i when i get when i try and get gavin to talk about the highs i'm really going to try and pull it out of him because <laughs> he's a very very humble guy and he won't, he won't bring it up or talk about it unless i try and pry which i'm going to try and do now so um so let's paint a picture of this you at this stage you're getting more and more confident you're in commercial property you're making big money you're realizing how good it can be you're comparing it to, to being an architect where you know it was just compared to what you were doing when the times were good with property it was it, you couldn't compare it it was just a whole different playing field right now at, at this at this stage you'd never seen a recession before or a cycle in the in the economy which took a massive downturn right well i had i had seen my dad struggling through one but the thing is 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 that people have a short memory and uh, one of the reasons i started my own podcast was because a lot of people i can see these mistakes like you can see it all over the place it's only when you've been burned yourself you suddenly re remember this kind of stuff and you can see other people and people warn you about it you just ignore it it's only when you get burned yourself that you actually start to pay attention to it and so 
that's exactly what happened in this case. So I had seen, you know, when my dad died, interest rates were like 18% or something like that. So, wow. you know, um, we had a big mortgage on our, on our home and stuff on my mom and I, like we were trying to sell assets in order to pay off the mortgage so that we didn't have to move into a smaller house, 16%, 18% interest rates. This was shortly after the currency crisis of the 1980, the late eighties. Yeah. And um, so it was, so it was there, but it was kind of becoming a distant memory. And, um, and for me, I mean, you, you're 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 trying to drag these things out of me. I mean, I'll give you an example of one deal that I did, and it was it was astronomical. It was kind of a one off, but I I went and there was a there was a piece of land that I knew about that was coming up for sale, and I tried to swoop in and buy it before anyone else knew about it. And so I paid. Um, it, they put it on the market at nine hundred thousand, and in the end, I think it somebody else bid it against me, and we ended up I ended up paying one point two million for it. And I was intending getting architects on board. And in fact, I met the architects and we were looking at what we could do now with this little piece of land. And this bank, uh, its institution in this area came along and said, oh, we need that piece of land. And how the hell did that come up in the market and we not see it? And uh, this guy, this new guy has it, you know? So mm. they approached an agent who happened to know me and he rang me up. And I remember I was having lunch with somebody and he goes, Gavin, did you just buy that piece of land in this place? And I said, yeah, yeah. I just met the architects today. And he goes, oh, it's your lucky day. You know, this, this financial institution really wants it. And I said, well, look, I'm, I've, I've been meeting architects. It's not for sale, blah, blah, blah. You know, boosting it up a little bit. Tell, tell them the answer is no. <laughs> Yeah. Tell them the answer. No, I'm not. I'm not yeah. taking it. Out of, out yeah. of interest, what are, they, what are they offering? Well, the funny thing is, is I said, listen, I've got plans for this, and like I'm going to make good profit on this. So you know, they'd need to be making me a pretty good offer for me to walk away from it. So anyway, they came back with an offer, and I sort of said, no, nah, it's not going to do it. And it actually was a pretty good, a damn good offer. But in the end, long long story short, six weeks later, I sold that property for three point seven million. And wow. yeah, so in six weeks, I made a 2.5 million profit. And that was Very when good. it all went bonkers. That's when I just suddenly thought like, I am Superman, like I can do anything. And that's when the ego started to kind of- a, 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 a golden Gavin tower. <laughs> you know what the thing is, is I had been living in a modest three bedroom house in, in a nice part of Dublin to be fair, but it was modest enough and, um, and I had, you know, I had my, I had kids on the uh, kids actually at this stage. And so the house was feeling a bit small and I can remember thinking to myself, wow, um, now with this money, like I can really spoil mm. myself. So actually I, I decided to convert one of the houses that I was building this first project that I mentioned in the back of these. And that was in a really good part of Dublin and stuff. And I ended up converting, you know, building a basement and doing all this stuff. And it ended up a seven bedroom place with its own wine cellar and a, on, uh, and a basement gym and like i mean i just wow. went crazy on this beautiful house and uh, and i did that and at the same time i bought a villa in spain and i bought an apartment in new york city and i, I did just all this kind of stuff in the space and of this was in the, what, what year was this this was period? this period was around from about 2005 till about 2007 in that two-year period um, I just, everything just started to go crazy. Right. I mean, I'm, and as, as well as that, I started getting into the stock market and, okay. and, and that was like, you weren't, you, weren't, you weren't busy enough with property. Doesn't it, sound, it doesn't sound like you were busy enough to be honest. This, mate. You know, I did mention the ADHD in school and it's, I think it kind of came back and I just, I can remember like just not saying no to anything. You know, people would come to me a project that yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. And, and so and times are good. 
you know. This is the thing, and this is the discipline that I talk about nowadays. I sort of say, you know, patience and discipline is so critical as an investor. Yeah. But, but like, you have to learn these painful lessons yourself to kind of suddenly go, oh yeah, he was right, um, yeah. and that's the problem. So what I did was I, I I met a friend of mine, a good friend from college, and we were having lunch, or I can't remember. It was like. We, we hung out for a couple of days anyway, and he was telling me about all the money he was making on the stock market. And he was doing a thing called C, C, CFDs. And CFDs are contracts for difference where you kind of, you, you borrow money to, to buy shares and, and it's all done through this kind of a thing. And, uh, and I can remember sort of seeing him, he made, you know, 40,000 profit on like a Ryanair purchase or something like that. And I can remember thinking, God, you know, this guy, how did he make 40 grand? And so I decided, okay, I've got all this cash here. I'm going to like go in myself and do this as well. So I went and I put, I think I put, I took a hundred thousand of my savings and I put it into the CFD account and I turned that hundred thousand in, in the space of about six months. I turned that into eight hundred thousand uh, of of value, so mm. a seven hundred thousand profit in in this uh, or capital gain on paper, seven hundred thousand in the space of six months. And I can remember, and this is when all this other stuff was happening as well. So yeah. it was just like, my God, like I can do no wrong. So I was yeah. going down to the local Porsche dealership, you know, specking out a nine eleven for myself and all. I mean, I was just thinking, like, you know, the money is that easy to make. Like it just, yeah. you know, and um, and then suddenly around about 2006 the the stock market took a bit of a wobble and suddenly the shares that i had in that particular those companies dropped a little bit and then they dropped a bit more and i can remember at the time when it was at 800 grand it was that i think it went to 850 at the maximum point and i remember thinking okay when it gets to a million i'll sell and mm. i'll get my, i'll get my shares out uh, i get my cash out and i'll buy the I'll buy the 911 Porsche and I'll have 600 grand left over and I'll use that 600 grand to, to, you know, to pay off the mortgage on the house in Spain or something like that. You know, it was all this kind of like, oh yeah, I'll do this, I'll do that. There was no science to it. It was just kind of like very much on the fly. Mm. And um, and then the price dropped suddenly, bang, it was down to 500,000. And I was thinking, wow. damn, you know, okay, I'll wait for it to go back to 850 and I'll sell bang down to 400 and this is the problem when you start chasing your losses and you start mm -hmm. getting it into your head that oh no it's going to go back to 800 and yeah. i chased it down 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 i didn't chase it down to zero i chased it down below zero oh, and, nice. and i ended up having to put another 150 grand into the account just to keep the position open until i just said like give it up give it up so i lost a quarter of a million on that so what did you start from? You, this started I put 100 out. in. I put 100 cash in, and I ended yep. up having to put in another 150. So I lost 250 on that wow. adventure. Yeah. Wow. But of course, you went through the whole roller coaster of going up to 850, then down, and then having to fix it. So. And, and that's the thing. And the worst thing about it is that people are, and I talk about this on my podcast a lot, people kind of get this emotional attachment to this figure, and they think mm. to themselves, okay, I'm going to sell when it gets to this level. And they don't kind of think, you know, why would the market go to that level? Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's there's absolutely no reason why it'll reach that level out of yeah. just, that you've just plucked out of thin air. Yeah. And so people are people can be kind of irrationally exuberant or irrationally mm. emotional about stuff and just get these kind of like fixated ideas. And that's what happened with me. And and it started to happen then inside the property stuff as well. And I started yeah. to, to realize. Ooh, things are getting a bit shaky. So I decided I wanted to kind of get out of the property market. But by that stage, I had projects that were kind of like holes in the ground. You can't sell them when they're a hole in the ground. You have to build yeah. it out. 
And so there was this kind of race because I could see 2007, I could see the market was getting kind of a bit shaky. Mm. People were starting to talk about this thing subprime. And, and I, and I do watch American, you know, news networks quite a bit. So I was hearing about subprime, subprime, subprime. I remember thinking, this doesn't sound good. This sounds like it could, you know, grow and get worse and so worse. So I really started thinking time to get out. But unfortunately, this is the problem was once you start to realize this, other people in the market do too. And there's this sudden like stampede for the exits. Right. Um, exactly. So, and then, and then the worst thing is, is the same chasing your profits down. Uh, I had this big, and I had this property that I wanted to sell and a guy offered me 8.8 .8 million for this property. And I thought, okay, I'll sell that. I'll pay off. I had about 6 million of debt on it. So I'll pay off the debt and I'll have 2.2 million, you know, profit sitting. And what happened was he pulled out of the deal and suddenly like, oh geez, you know, what am I going to do now? That 2 million has evaporated. And so mm. I kept it out there for sale. And then prices just kept coming in lower and lower and lower until it was below the debt. And I just had to forget about that. Happened then on other stuff as well. And you suddenly realize when somebody makes you a first offer, sometimes that's the offer you just need to accept. You need to swallow it, you know, and just accept that this is the, the best you're going to do. If you have this like idea, inflated idea that no, no, it's worth more than that. And you hold out for that price, you'll end up going back to the guy that offered you this price and it'll be lower again by that stage. And, and that's what happened um, on multiple properties. And so it really got, it, it became like a deck of cards basically. And yeah. then the banks started to put me under pressure. I ended up with three banks chasing me to, to, you know, to repay debt and all this kind of stuff. So it became, an absolute nightmare um, mm. and that's yeah so that's what we're getting into now <laughs> yeah right yeah so, so so i mean it's first of all some really good practical advice there i think pretty much if you're if you're, if you're noticing this downward spiral don't get emotionally attached to to a figure that you think you should get for your assets your property or stocks or whatever it is um in fact you know get out while you can um if that is your if that is your plan anyway um doing it sooner rather than later when everyone else has jumped on it is, is brilliant advice um, it's advice you've given me recently as well, which is <laughs> which I've taken. Um, so from from this situation then, um, where you had this massive high, you know, you were you were just absolutely killing it. You're, you're smashing a business, smashing the, the investments. Suddenly, you know, not just in property, but in the stock market, all over the place. Then suddenly, you, you're starting this this you know this really difficult downward spiral. It becomes very obvious that it's not sustainable what you were doing, and now you're in the situation where you're starting to lose pretty much everything right what paint me a picture of what it looked like when you when you when you hit the bottom of that and what what is the bottom of that well it's um yeah i mean the thing is is these things don't happen overnight but they're it's this kind of gradual death by a thousand cuts and it's you know you, you get the you get the odd awkward conversation with the bank manager and then it, it you know culminates with you know some sort of demand being made and you have to kind of do something to kind of rectify that and it kind of went on like that it was it was never one huge big immediate hit mm. but i can remember thinking that everything was fine this is just a blip and then i'd sort it all out but there was these points where when prices were dropping and i can remember thinking to myself geez you know what i can't seem to catch a break here i can't seem to sell anything at the price i was offered because at the top of it you know i was being offered like you know millions in profit and stuff like that and it was and as far as i was concerned this was all going to be fine i would take that profit i'd put it against this debt i'd take this other profit put it against this debt and that would sort everyone out and mm. the problem is is that 
like I said, everyone is now stampeding for the door and the market kind of goes into this free fall and you can do nothing about it. Like you're just literally a passenger. Mm-hmm. And um, and so the worst that it went, I went from having, you know, kind of um, tens of millions in, in value to actually being 16 million below zero um, because the, the value of the properties fell to such an extent. They fell, I mean, in in my portfolio, we had as much as 80% fall in value mm. and for certain sites that weren't ready to be built. Wow. 80, 80% eight. drop. And of course, your, your mortgages haven't changed. They're the same. That's the thing. So, and when you, when, you, when you borrow like money, you know, if, you borrow, if you're buying an asset, usually you're trying to get the, as mo- the most amount of cash you can from the bank. So you go to the bank and you say, can I have, you know, a 60% loan and I'll put 40% in. But back in those days, it was far more aggressive. I was saying, can I get 90% loan and I'll put 10% yeah. down. So I had these like huge loans and all of a sudden the, the value of the property has dropped way below the, below the value of the loan. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, yeah, huge drop. And so, 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 so I mean, that's just crippling, isn't it really? I mean, what, where, do you, where do you, where do you go from this when, you know, what does it, what does it feel like to be told you're 18 million euros in debt? Yeah, it's pretty difficult because, you know, you you start to kind of realize that this is a hole that you dug for yourself. And mm. that, uh, the problem is, is that it starts to emerge, you know, that the, you know, the realization of how bad things are emerges whilst you're still in the market freefall. So you start to realize that you're in this trouble, but you don't see the market like, you know, coming to a rest and starting to rise again. You're still in the freefall. And so, I mean, I was, I was kind of thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm 5 million negative. Oh shit. Now I'm 8 million negative. Now I'm 10 million negative. And and when I got to 16 million negative, I remember just thinking like, Jesus, you know, I may as well just declare bankruptcy. The only reason I didn't was because at the time, what actually happened was um, I had full control over my portfolio income and I had, even though the even though I technically owned like 16 million more than my assets were worth, I was still the interest rates were actually quite low, and so my income versus my expenditure on, on interest was a big big difference, a big gap between them. So I was I had maybe 200 thousand a year of cash coming in more than there was interest rate interest to pay out. So I was able to live on this 200 thousand. And I was able to kind of keep the show on the road on this 200,000. So I was actually able to maintain to a certain degree my lifestyle. I wasn't buying the big ticket items anymore, but I still had my kids in expensive school and all of this kind of stuff. I I started looking for a way out by moving to Dubai. I spent some time uh, in Dubai. Then I moved to Qatar. I I actually went to Africa as well for about six months. And uh, I spent time in Ghana getting involved in in an office building down there. And all of this stuff was happening while I was, you know, getting this cash, extra cash blip. And it was, so things were, I thought to myself, I'll use this cash flow to basically find a new project that'll sort everything out and I'll make the millions and I'll, and I'll suddenly bounce back and everything will be great. So that was the plan. And that's what kind of kept me motivated to kind of keep going. I mean, there was, there was this hope that you had in your mind that, you know, you you, you didn't have a solution. You you look, you looked forward and you had this, you know, you were you were constantly looking for ways in which you could solve it. You wouldn't. There wasn't this 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 situation where you just froze and you were like, like, there's nothing I can do. 
Well, you know, there were times when I felt like burying my head in the sand for sure. You know, I can remember when the when the stock market thing was going wrong for me. It was my birthday and I was down at this beach club with my young daughters and they were all playing in the water and running around and everything like that. And we were having a great day, my birthday, you know, and um, I remember going back to the sun chair and uh, and, you know, taking my phone out and checking it and there was like six missed calls from the from the from the guys that ran the cfd company yeah. and i was just like oh. so i rang the person back and say oh hi gavin yeah yeah unfortunately um the market slipped a little bit more so you need to put seventy thousand into the account uh, today and, present, isn't it? and i just remember thinking like you know uh i was i was going to curse like you know what the f you know uh just you know like what kind of birthday present like is this and my kids are there and it just ruins your day and so yeah. i remember just kind of thinking to myself what the hell am i at like why am i in all this stuff so it was around about that time that i just said to the guy look clear that whole bloody lot out just you know i'll pay you your 70 grand but that's it like i'm i'm, I'm getting out and um and so that was the first kind of capitulation moment when i kind of thought you know what it's not worth the grief that i'm getting trying yeah. to keep it all keep all the balls in the air and, and spinning them i kind of compare it to spinning plates you know where you have 10 plates and just as you're kind of getting to the last one you realize the other one is about to fall off and you have to go running back and it was like that continuously all day every day late into the night mm. and it, it became overwhelming and, and um, i guess i guess the you know these these spinning plates uh, underneath those spinning plates is your family right and if one of them drops you feel you feel that huge element of guilt and i think i think there's a lot of people right now especially during the pandemic who, who got a bit of a wake-up call and I, th I think especially in dubai i think there's a lot of people out here who are living um way beyond their means i think there's it's an environment where people tend to do that quite a lot and um, you know there's there's a lot of opportunity for that and i think i think you know when it comes to mental health and um, if you look at previous recessions mental health especially if if you're the the, the you know the, the breadwinner of the family the man or the woman and you're having to provide and suddenly you lose that source of income um and yeah and if you're a business and you've been living the high life and really you feel that it's somewhat your responsibility and you're at fault for losing that then that guilt must just feel overwhelming as well yeah it does really start to impact you and um in fact it, things got far worse than that because the strain that i was under um that was causing me to kind of go to Dubai and look for projects in Dubai. I was spending weeks abroad, look, you know, working on stuff and then flying home to spend time with the family who were still in Spain. And, um, and what I, I can remember just arriving home and myself and my wife at the time, we were, you know, just in this constant kind of bickering and rowing. And so, and, and so the marriage actually fell apart um, as a result of that kind of recession. And whereas we had been kind of quite happy prior to that, suddenly like just the strain becomes too much and you kind of get to the point where I just sort of saying, you know what, this is not a healthy environment for my children, like to sort of see their parents like at each other's throats and stuff. So I just said, you know, I'm moving out. And it was the most difficult decision. And when you throw that into you know the mix and you add to the fact that okay so now i'm dealing with all of this struggle but a uh, financial struggle now i've actually moved out and so i now have to support her in that house and i have to find you know uh, additional income to pay for the rent than my new place and so it got kind of worse but mentally at least i can felt like i had a break from the kind of the rouse and stuff like that and um went on and on like this and i got to the point where the real 
crescendo of the negative sort of stuff came was I actually moved to London. And when I was in London, I was actually kind of thinking to myself, you know, it gives me options at least for potentially declaring bankruptcy because in, in London you can declare bankruptcy or in the UK and, and you have 12 months and that's it. Mm. If I had gone back to Ireland at the time, the law was that you had to go, you had to be bankrupt for 12 years. And so, yeah, you would be literally unable to do anything for 12 years. Wow. And so it was, it was never an option to go home and, and go bankrupt. It was always go to the UK and, you know, 12 months of hardship and then you can start building again. And so I, I went to the UK for that reason, but I still had this buffer of cash coming in from my cash flow and stuff. So I was saying to myself, no, this is good. I'll get into. So I was constantly getting into kind of new projects and I was earning fees and I was kind of keeping the show on the road. And then what happened was um, I got a call from the bank and the thing with the banks, um, the, the main bank that was kind of that I had most of my debt with, usually they, they were switching up teams all the time. So just as soon as you got to know somebody in that team and you were starting to have a rapport with them, they'd be gone. And, yeah. and suddenly you'd be like, oh, I have to start again with this completely new person. And it was like this. And, and I went through five different teams and like over every six months or so, there was a new team. And so you could never build a rapport. So even though I had, maybe I had done loads of great stuff with the last team, there was no record of that. It was just like, okay, you know, here's a, here's a guy that's in trouble. Let's hammer the guy. So it was constantly like battling with these guys. And then suddenly they brought in this guy who was completely different. He was such a negative kind of a person and such a different person to deal with. And he just wrote to me on, I think it was the 12th of December, um, back in 2014 or 2013 or something like that. And it was, it was 2014. And it was just that Gavin, you, um, we are, uh, as per the contract, we are performing a, a full cash sweep. And what that meant was that all of this income that was coming into my bank account and I was paying out to the, was no longer coming to me at all. It was going straight to the bank. So a hundred percent of my income wiped out in one go with no warning at all. Uh, just literally the, the letter was, this is happening this week, bank, that's it. So no preparation, nothing. So suddenly I'm there like, uh, now I'm in a, I'm in a rented place in London. You know, it's not, it's not cheap to live in London. And I remember kind of thinking like, holy shit, I got to, I got to pay the rent. How am I going to afford this? Like I've lost everything. So I was trying to kind of prop things up. I had a little bit of savings left aside, but they were running out pretty quickly. So as soon as my lease was finished in London, I moved to Ireland and I actually had to go to my brother and say, bro, can you let me live rent free in one of your rental properties? And he was like, yeah, sure, man, no problem. But that's how low it got that I couldn't even afford rent. I actually need my brother's support to help yeah. me. So to go from the, you know, the, the lifestyle where I was traveling first class and, you know, driving the nicest cars to suddenly having to kind of get down on my knee and plead for my brother's like support, it was absolutely soul destroying. And I suddenly realize like how deeply, you know, troubled i was by this kind of situation and, and the feeling just of complete helplessness you know and needing so at that stage i had been i'd been doing my own thing for so many years i suddenly thought to myself geez i i have no choice but to actually look for a job and actually so i went back to the family business that i had left a couple of years when things were going well i had said see you later guys i don't i don't need the kind of the job and and I and I'd been spent I spent years living in Spain and abroad and stuff, and I went back to them and I said, you know, is there any 
is there any chance that I can I can get a job in here? So thankfully, somebody had left, and I stepped into his role and okay. started to try to rebuild again. And, and and so that was kind of the low point, and starting from then, I started to build again. Yeah, absolutely brutal low point. Um, yeah, I mean, I've just got just so many so many things to ask on that. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you've 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 fully recovered from that situation, which was obviously you know a massive shock from where you were to where you know the way you where you went and the way you are now. And but for a lot of people watching this today, there there will be people right now, guaranteed listening to this podcast who they they you know for instance in the uk had the first lockdown they may have survived the first lockdown with their business they've now had a second lockdown where their business had to close again and there's just no way they think they can carry their business through from a mindset perspective and a you know when, when it when we talk about resilience what kind of comforting words of, of advice or support could you give having been there and kind of done it in a very extreme way to these people? Well, the first thing, I mean, you've got to, I mean, obviously looking forward, you got to remember that the dark place that you're in is just a moment in time. And a lot of the time, the biggest problem that I had was kind of wondering what other people would think as opposed to what I felt myself. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I built this kind of ego around me, like, you know, the guy with the, the flashy lifestyle and, and all of that. And that was one of the biggest problems is that you kind of, you create this problem for yourself by being mm. so kind of showy. And, and, and one of the things I try to tell people, you know, like, you know, leaving aside that is just, you know, this comparison lifestyle that we all live in nowadays with Instagram and, you know, people kind of taking photographs in front of the flashy car and all that. I mean, that is such nonsense. Like when I look at it now, I kind of think to myself, like the, the smartest people are the ones that just do not tie their ego up in the size of their wallet. You know, they, they just completely separate the two. And that's the first thing is to just remember it's a, it's a, it's a moment in time you feel extreme difficulty, yes. And like, I couldn't talk about this story a couple of years ago. You know, I was too kind of caught up in the, the shame of the fall. But now I realize mm. it's actually very helpful for people. And so I kind of decided, you know what? I'm not, it's not the failure that defines you. It's how mm. you deal with the failure that defines you. It's how you get up and that's how you show up having gone through that failure. And that's the biggest thing is you have to kind of get you know, yeah, first of all, you got to develop the resilience. You got to say to yourself, okay, this is a moment in time. Even if I declare bankruptcy, it's actually, you're shedding all this baggage. It's actually a hugely kind of um, a lightening of your load. Like as soon as yeah. you say, you know what, that's it. That's all behind me now. All those headaches, all that dealing with the banks and stuff, the administrator will deal with all that. So that is actually a huge benefit because there was this, I can, I, I, I remember thinking to myself, I will, God, you know, I cannot seem to get a break from these guys calling me up with making demands and all that. And that one of the, if I, if I hadn't had that cash flow, I probably would have declared bankruptcy much earlier. But that kind of thing was keeping me up and allowing me to put this lifestyle thing on where, oh, you know, he's he's still doing okay. Look, he's flying all around the world. He's like going off chasing. Yeah, that bit of cash flow made, made sure you keep up with the Joneses, keep up with your... You're yeah, kind of and, and, and when I realize it, like you're absolutely right. The thing is, is when I look back now, I realize that that's actually what exactly that was. What I should have been doing was I should have been cutting the lifestyle like 
before it was forced on me by the bank, I should yeah. have completely cut it right back. I should have said, you know what? Who cares what people think? Get rid of the flash car. Get yourself a golf. You know, um, yeah. who cares about you know uh, all this kind of like showy stuff? And once you do that, you kind of like you shed this load, and you suddenly go, God, you know, the relief. I've come yeah. out, come clean, and it's like you know if if you've done something wrong and you come clean, you kind of feel like, oh, thank God, that's out in the open now, and. Yeah. So what happened with me was I kind of kept on trying to kind of keep up this persona, made things worse. And then suddenly when the bank went and pulled the plug, like I could have actually been taking that wedge of extra cash that was supporting this lifestyle. I could have kept putting that into paying off debts and mm. I would have been in a far better position then when, because the bank would have said, oh, the guy's knocking 200 grand a year off his debts. Like he's in, he's, he's a pretty good candidate, like, you know, to kind of continue to support. Instead, they were like, what you've been living on 200 grand you know of course they were going to come down heavy on me yeah right they, 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 were, they were comparing it to everyone else rather than you know what they were what saying you were the, the guy's paying you know 10 grand a year for each of his kids to go to school in that fancy school you know and, yeah. and all this kind of stuff so it was um yeah it was really it's so you know fast forward i kind of said to myself okay leaving aside that i've shed all that baggage i now i'm kind of like a new man and, and how do i want to show up now as this new man and i thought first of all disconnect your ego from from all of that money and stuff like that i decided that i wanted to be the fittest guy that i knew that was the first kind of step and mm -hmm. so I, I started looking at my health and all that kind of stuff i started thinking to myself okay and so started getting into running and all this kind of stuff and early morning meditation, all these kind of like exercises yeah, right. that just help you realize that, you know, that this is not. And also, you know, my, my marriage. Tap into the, the health side of stuff. You, you Haven't you run some like mega marathons or Iron, Iron, you're an Ironman or something? Is that right? I do all sorts of challenges now. I've done, I've done, I've actually signed up for an Ironman next year and, um, and I've done two half Ironman in the last couple of years. And in August, I did 10,000 burpees. Um, <laughs> I did it as a charity thing, 10,000 burpees in, in 30 days. So an average yeah. of 33 a day. And so, uh, that's the you're going to get from that. <laughs> <laughs> And it went on like this, but I, so I constantly set myself these kind of challenges because I want to be the fittest version of myself. Yeah. And that was something great. Also, this kind of push for, um, you know, improving your health, improving your fitness that came at a time where you lost, you, you lost your power within what, what your ego was tied to previously, which was money and wealth and, and business. Right. That's, that's something I've seen quite a bit. I think recently, if, if you've been running a successful business or you've been earning quite a lot and this is what this is what you tie your your personality to and this is what you tie your success or failure to and you lose all that you people then try and seek power in their lives somewhere else and and i think for a lot of people that is that is fitness isn't it so you obviously have this massive push towards that to get to get more control maybe yeah i mean the thing is is first of all it was fitness it was also like looking back on it i had seen my my dad's health you know fall away very quickly when he went on that trip to africa i remember thinking to myself i don't want to be like that i want to be you know one of these people that you know in my 50s i can be doing ironman races and things like that so i was completely focused on that and then after a while i kind of thought to myself okay what else can i and i started getting into um you know the real estate stuff i started actually wanting to speak out there speak more about it so i started developing my confidence in as a speaker and things like that and all of a sudden you know i started saying you know what i can actually share this story like you know a couple of years ago you would have asked me a question about this and i would have 
completely papered over all this and tried to kind of yeah. let on like that none of it has happened to me at all but yeah. you kind of realize that it's actually it's how you deal with the you know it's it's like i said you know it's how you deal with the failure is is what kind of defines you not the failure itself yeah. I can totally relate to that a lot of a lot of what i'm talking about these days is bullying or, or post-traumatic growth from a near-death experience that sort of stuff and it's 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 super uncomfortable to to talk about don't like talking about it but what makes it infinitely easier to talk about is the fact that it's not really about you. It's about the, the people listening and who who you might be helping. And I, I know that from the the just the conversations you've had with me, which I've then passed on to other people. You know, it's not it's not only helped me, but it's helped the people I've spoken to as well. I mean, there's people in this group right now that I've given your advice to, and they've benefited from it. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's <laughs> so, directly. So it's you know it's having using those difficult times and those experiences to help other people is, a, is an amazing mission i think well that's it you know and the thing is is i see so many guys out there I, you know i'm kind of um i'm out in the in the public eye a bit more nowadays than i was in the past and i see these other guys around me who were kind of out there doing it as well and i see so many of them talking up you know talking up the success and you know they they jump onto the stage wearing the flashy kind of clothes and the watch and there's photographs on their instagram of them standing next to the kind of the bentley or whatever and i can remember kind of thinking to myself you know what i, I i'm going to go completely against that i'm going to go and just push completely back against that and sort of say you know what that is all bs you really have to kind of move your mindset you got to become disciplined you got to become patient this is a slow game you know the, the whole the real estate investment business is a slow grow business you you should be buying property for your grandchildren that's the way you should be looking at real estate you don't you, the stuff that i was doing i was getting in and getting out i was trading and the problem yeah. with that is that you live and buy die by the sword when you're doing that kind of stuff you're kind of you're you know if you think about a bicycle wheel okay the way it works it's constantly turning the market is constantly turning you will be at the top of the market at some point yes you will also be at the bottom of the market at some point and the problem is is that the guys that are on the way up and when they get to the top like i did you think to yourself this is just gonna it's not a, it's not a, a wheel you think you're on a hill that just keeps going up and up and up yeah. and the reality is is that you get to this point it's the pinnacle of your of that point in the market and it starts to fall and when you look when you're going down through the fall you will start to think to yourself how on earth do I spend all that money? How did I waste that money? I mean, I was buying a car every year or two, you know what I mean? And and I'd be getting kind of one of the cars that I bought, I bought I got 40,000 euros worth of extras put on it, you know. And uh, I got all the computers and all that kind of stuff and TV cameras and stuff. And I can remember kind of thinking to myself, yeah, I like I need all this stuff. And then when you sell the car, I sold it for I think less than a third of what I had paid for it, like a year and a half. I remember thinking like, what a nightmare. And <clears throat> I think to myself now, you know, I start looking at things from a contribution point of view and from an impact point of view. And I think to myself, you know, I, I, I contribute to this thing called Charity Water. And I think it's a great, it's a great charity where they, they build wells in the developing world and allow people to have fresh water. And um, there's a guy called Scott Harrison who started it. And it's a, it's a real sort of... Um, it's, it's inspirational the way they're going about it. But every penny of the money goes into building wells and helping. And for something like 30 euro a day, you can you know basically give clean water for a week to, to a family or something like that in Africa or whatever. And it'll actually save lives and stuff. So I started mm. thinking to myself, God, you know, that money that I blew on the car, like I could have easily 
have kept like a, a small village alive for a year like a, <clears throat> now when you think like that you kind of start to say wow you know don't be so shallow kind of start to get kind of like below there's a guy there's an irish guy you should google him called chuck feeney and um dubai airport the 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 airport duty free there he was the inventor of airport duty free shopping uh, around oh, the really? world yeah irish guy and he he irish american okay and he created this business that was so incredibly successful that he at the I think at the top of his wealth he was worth you know six to ten billion or something like that and he decided that he wanted to give every single penny of it away while he was still alive and so the guy you know travels on the back of the plane even though he has the you know he had the wealth to have his own private jet traveled down the back of the plane always very very modest you know wouldn't have like you know he'd take a taxi rather than a limousine all this kind of stuff and i mean look each to their own but what's amazing about it is that he has funded like uh universities he's funded all sorts of things all around the world and you never see his name on the building like the chuck feeney mm -hmm. building or anything. he just does it completely anonymously and he has even put money into projects where other billionaires are putting money in and they're insisting that their name is at the top and he would go 50 50 but he'd say no no it's fine you can you can have your name at the top and it's that kind of i kind of think that is super cool super confident that you, know, mm. you don't you're you're not like you know you're not in this like race like oh, i have to be seen i have to be heard i have to be the man like that's kind of everyone's looking up to and he just anonymously anonymously kind of gives it away and the guy actually in the last month or two has achieved giving away every single penny of his wealth and he is now broke and yeah. he's but he's delighted that he's achieved in his lifetime because he, he he's kind of in his nearly in his 90s now at this day yeah. but he has achieved in his lifetime giving away every single penny of his wealth and wow. to him that that is a huge success yeah and and the and the foundation he created is like winding down now what, are, what an incredible just mindset that like legacy. legacy we'll be talking about this guy in 100 years time yeah. whereas the guys with the names in the building and stuff then the name gets like chiseled off when somebody else comes along and like you know wants something bigger or whatever so, wow yeah that's so cool. questions will we will we answer some of the questions or um well if there's any really good ones yeah i'll, I'll, have, a, I'll have a flick through in a second <laughs> there's really yeah, good one here. I, just, I see a couple of questions there and i'm thinking yeah. maybe we can help some people what's your advice for people who are currently at the top of the um cyclic market Oh, well, if you're at the top, I mean, the best advice I can have is to take as much of it. Uh, like, basically, first of all, assume that the market could crash at any time. And so don't assume that the next project you invest in is just going to keep on going. Always build in a margin of error just in case things go wrong. It may not. You may be kind of over egging it, kind of thinking that it's going to fall. But when the market is at the bottom, that's when you get aggressive, when you get greedy and you keep on buying and buying and buying. But as soon as you get to the top, you want to stop investing. And anything that you've got, any spare cash and stuff, try to just limit the amount that you're spending. You know, there's, it's very, very easy. We've got all of these cognitive biases where we think to ourselves we're disciplined, but in fact, temptation always makes you far less disciplined than you think. And so you'll easily spend money that you didn't think that you were going to spend and you'll blow it on on kind of like superfluous stuff that you don't need and half the stuff that we buy we didn't need and yeah. so you kind of have to develop this mature kind of mindset where you know keeping up with the joneses um 
I can remember friends of mine would have a new car and I'd be kind of like, God, he has a new car. I got to go and get a new car. And that kind of whole thing just leads to downfall. It's because as soon as he gets the new car, oh, I got to go and change my car now and I got to keep up with this guy. And mm. it's it sounds so obvious, but a lot of the time when you're doing really well, you keep on justifying why you can, why this is, you know, this is something that you've, re- you can reward yourself. This is something you can do. This is something that you deserve. And you don't realize that like none of us, as I said to you back last February, none mm. of us saw COVID coming. Like nobody predicted COVID. But I was thinking last November, 12 months ago, I was thinking there is going to be some kind of a recession in yeah. 2020. And I thought it was going to be because of, you know, Trump at the time was starting this kind of war with China and this trade war with China. And then I thought to myself, no, maybe it's going to be Brexit. Maybe that'll like shake the market to the point where it'll collapse. And there was all these things, but I was sure there was going to be some kind of a collapse. So I actually had cash put aside last November that, you know, basically going into this market that I just, whereas everyone else was kind of piling in and doing new deals and stuff, thinking, you know, market's going to continue going. So you really do have to be. I, I guess I guess the tricky thing about that question is when do you know you're at the top of the or top of the market? Do you know what I mean? When 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 do you know you are? You never doing- know. But the thing is, is is that like the markets run in cycles. So when if you've been if you've had like you know three four five years of upward growth, then there's mm-hmm. a good chance that you're coming near the top of the market. Now it could go on for another two years or something. And I'm not saying that you just completely put down tools and everything, but you've just got to look at deals in a far more kind of um, careful way. You know, you sort of, whenever I did a deal, I would have three outcomes, potential outcomes. One would be, you know, spectacular outcome. That's when everything goes exactly as according to plan. But then you've got to have the other one is, okay, what happens if the market's fallen and we're going to, we're looking at a 25% fall in the revenues that we were expecting? What's that look like? Um, yeah. how will that affect the costings and so and if you do those sums you start to kind of say to yourself you know what maybe i'm being over you know over cautious but i'm going to pass on this deal mm-hmm. uh, and you'll never go broke passing on a deal you know yeah. you'll go you'll bro- go broke bail you know piling into deals and borrowing money on the back of it just when the market turns mm. it's that's that's a really good point actually I, th- I think a lot of people they've got this kind of this mindset of you should only have a plan A, you shouldn't have a plan B or C or whatever, because otherwise you might fail. You're, you're distracting yourself from your plan A. I, I totally disagree with that. For me, it's like, you know, you, you obviously do as much as you can to have, a, you know, the, the, um, the inspiration and the, the drive and the accountability to tackle a plan A and see that as your priority. But, you know, having, having a plan B and C and D is just contingencies is, is sensible. Do you know what I mean? A lot of people... At the end of the day, you know, the market just, the market, you have no control. There's th- I call the, the three things that will take you down are the three E's. Economy, ego, emotion. Those three things. And there is, you know, you can control two of them, but the third one, the economy, you just cannot control that. Mm. But your ego tends to run away with you when you're having success. A couple of years of success, a couple of years of you winning everything that you touch does an awful thing to the brain and it just tells you like that you deserve all of this you've done all of this the market has you know the market rises and lifts all boats but for some reason you think that you're special and that you're the person who did this and that you're responsible for all of this success you know? yeah now that's that's something to remember emotional 
like what I mentioned about when you, when the prices are falling and all that kind of stuff, and you, you get emotionally yeah. tied to a price and stuff, that will kill you because you'll think to yourself, I'm not taking that offer. That's like paltry. And yeah. the reality is that might be the highest offer you will ever get for that property, you know. So you got to be very yeah. careful and you got to kind of think things through. And, and then the economy is just, it'll do whatever it's going to do. And you have no choice in that. I see a question there. How did I develop my confidence to become a speaker? It, that is something that actually I don't mind answering because I joined Toastmasters International. And um, it's it's something that I, I didn't really know much about. But there's a there's a there's a chapter here in this business park that I run. And, um, and I went in to kind of, you know, join in one day and I can remember kind of thinking, you know, oh, I see people are talking and stuff like that. And I just, I joined up as a member. I kept on going up, turning up every, it was every second week in my case. And every second week I would turn up and I would just get a little bit more confident, a little bit more confident. And then I got to the point where I was actually writing a speech half an hour before I had to give, to give the speech. And uh, it got to the point where I sort of felt like, you know, I can actually do this anywhere. So I've actually started now speaking, you know, in conferences and things like that. Mm. And it doesn't like I don't bat an eyelid, just get up on, on the stage and just shoot, shoot off. And, uh, and and I put it all down to just baby steps in somewhere like Toastmasters, where every day or every second week I'm exposed to a little bit more, you know, speaking in front of people. Yeah. And just you're developing the skills and stuff like that. Just muscle memory, being being in that uncomfortable situation repeatedly, and makes, so, it, makes it comfortable. Yeah. Something something I always say is you can get used to anything. You know, yeah. It's Whether true. that being in a yeah. being in a boxing ring, being on the edge of a cliff, or being in public speaking, whatever it is on the stage, you can just get used to anything that you know you find uncomfortable, no matter how extreme that is, if you do enough of it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And it's what they say about, I can't remember the name, but the treatment for people who have phobias, mm. um, spider phobias and things like that. And it's the same. In fact, glossophobia is the fear of public speaking. And really? glossophobia is a larger number of people suffer from glossophobia than do arachnophobia. Um, well, so, yeah, what, I've, what I've heard as well is that, you know, the, the fear of social rejection is, is a stronger, more powerful fear than death. Yeah. And I, and I think I think that actually goes back to you know cave caveman that cave woman days where you know if you get rejected by the tribe yeah you're right no, your own you can't continue your family there's no you're like that's you done yeah, like, yeah. you don't exist so it's so it's like you know it's worse than death because of that and so there's a, there's actually there's a, some great books out there about I think there's one called Influence and it's it's a I'm trying to remember the name of the author but. It's a uh, it's a book and, and all of that stuff comes into it. And they and the, what they've found is that it's these kind of inbuilt things that we have inside our DNA. It's like a cognitive biases. And we, did, we don't even realize that we are making these decisions based on these biases. And they like top marketers use that to influence your decision making. And he writes this whole book is all about, you know, how people take advantage of these things. And, you know, for example, they found that when whenever um i think it was harry krishna or something like that and they used to come up and give you a flower mm. and um and prior to that prior to them learning to give people a flower they would go up and ask for money and they would just be told to get lost but they found that if you give somebody something there's now there's a feeling like that you have to reciprocate in some way and so you've you've got the flower and now you feel like you have to put your hand in your pocket and give this guy something because you've now received something there's all of this kind of it's going on behind, you know, behind your brain, in your subconscious. You have no yeah. idea 
but these guys have figured it all out and they're and they're using it and it's the same with social media it's how the yeah. social media companies have got us all kind of hooked yeah yeah no it's so true brilliant wow Ton tons of amazing advice here and i think you guys will all agree listening to this if you're going for a difficult time you know just listening to to gavin's advice and experience you know with overcoming um you know huge adversity um you know going through a, a, a you know a huge recession and having that res uh, you know a resilience through recession just you know really really inspiring to listen to and um, brilliant advice I, I love what you said about you know you gave us advice looking at the economy like a wheel you give us advice from the bottom of the wheel and the top of the wheel you know from the bottom of the wheel seeing it when you when you really feel like you've lost everything seeing it as a moment in time the fact that failure doesn't define you um, and seeing cutting back your expenses like a, a lightening of the load, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and no, the, um, plenty of painful, uh, painful lessons um, along the way. But the reality is, is that it's 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 when you fail that's actually the biggest learning is when you fail. Yeah. And if you just apply that kind of, if you just take that as a kind of, um, you know, a bit of wisdom and say to yourself, you know what, you know, this is just, it's this is life. And I was in a high risk high reward business and you do not get out of a high risk high reward business without having some sort of moment when it all kind of goes pear-shaped on you and the reality is is you know most people after a couple of years they they bounce back that they, they may you know be a little bit more cautious coming back and they'll certainly be a little bit more disciplined with their spending mm -hmm. and things like that but that's that's basically it you know Totally. And, you know, what was the, the, the three E's? Was ego, economy, emotion? The three E's. Yeah, your ego, your emotions, and the economy. And uh, so you, you have, you have just no, yeah. You, two out of three you can control, but the vast majority of the, uh, like the economy will just come out of nowhere and nobody has any control. And each time I saw it, you know, the, the, the dot com crash back in 2000, um, you know, that was something that none of us kind of saw. There was people, you know, selling shares in, in, in companies that were like six months old and they were becoming billionaires and stuff like that. And of course, then there was the, the real estate bubble that built up in 2008. And I can remember looking back, I remember looking at magazines and there was guys driving Lamborghinis and, you know, they're kind of like saying, oh yeah, you know, I've, I've bought 14 properties in this, in this, you know, estate and they'd, you know, he's saying, like, oh, I've forgotten where, where, which is the other property? Isn't, is this the one I own and all this? And I can remember thinking like, you know, a lot of people be impressed by that and and the likes of you know there's guys like grant cardone and all that that people are kind yeah. of impressed with but the reality is is they're kind of pumping it up and they're, yeah. they're kind of like you know look at me look at all the wealth and stuff and they're not giving people the kind of the warning that hold on a second this could all turn very very quickly yeah. and you guys are kind of like pumping it up and of course there's a sort of there's a ruthless aspect a ruthless salesman aspect to what a lot of these kind of so yeah. gurus it's, do it's a mix between property business and show business yeah i mean and <laughs> like once you realize it's the show business it's the same with donald trump you know so yeah. many people don't realize like he he would go on the like for example as soon as somebody goes on the likes of uh you know um, the apprentice or a show like that mm. like that usually is a sign that they're actually past their their sell-by date because <laughs> Like anyone whose business is doing well wouldn't be bothered going to do a show like yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And in his case, you know, he's flying in, in helicopters and he's standing on the top of these buildings that are 
you know, this building I built for 800 million and it's today it's worth a billion and all this. I, I know some of the guys that are in, in New York and some of those buildings, like he doesn't own even 1% of the building. His really? name is on the front door and that is it. And he got paid a fee for that name. And <laughs> but written in the deep, deep in the contract is that he's allowed to use the, you know, he's allowed to say that he owns the building as part of his whole wow. marketing kind of thing. And wow. when, you when you start to dig in and you also see, you know, these posts of guys in private jets and you realize that, you can actually go down to the airport and you can pay like, you know, a hundred dollars or something like that to stand on the steps of the private jet, like, and take some photos inside and selfies and stuff. Um, I mean, and so like, that is what you're, you know, you don't have the lifestyle, but you're trying to portray this thing. This, this, this seems like the, the, you know, the perfect way to lead onto your podcast really behind, behind the facade. It's just sums yeah, up perfectly. Uh, I'll, yeah, maybe we can put a link somewhere for somebody, but yeah. I'll, I'll do in, in the group and on YouTube is our is our paste um, a, a link to Gavin's podcast. If you're really into property or even just mindset around the stuff and you enjoyed today, you'll find that really fascinating. Yeah, and if you want to check out um, anything more on me, I have a website, GavinJGallagher.com, and uh, and uh, yeah, you, you'll find a lot of different things in there for me. Absolutely amazing, Gavin. Been a been an absolute pleasure finally getting you on to to chat through this stuff. Sorry, I kept you so long. We could, we, we could keep on talking another 20 minutes, probably. Yeah, we could. Yeah, I could tell you some more stories, but let's we'll, have to, we'll, have to do a, we'll have to do a part two. <laughs> no problem. Anytime, Sebastian. Good to see you. All right, mate. Yeah, brilliant to see you. Thank you so much for coming on, mate. Take care. Take care. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to be the first to get access to our live interviews, then head over to f10x.com to apply to be a part of our online community. 